0: Let's turn for our reading from the Word of God to the letter of James. And we begin our reading, James chapter 5 and verse 1. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay, the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we considered blessed those who've persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain in the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. I wonder, do you read much Christian biography? Are you interested in hearing about the lives of great Christian men and women of the past? Maybe some of the great figures in the church like Luther or Calvin. Maybe some others that are lesser known. But sometimes reading Christian biography that in a way should encourage us and should help us uh, can actually leave us with a feeling of uselessness, of defeat. Sometimes you read the biographies of great Christians of the past and it seems they lived on a plane of spiritual life, uh, way above the, the struggles of ordinary Christians like yourself. Uh, they seemed to experience perhaps few setbacks uh, in their walk with God, and when they did, they were able to overcome them very quickly. They seem perhaps to find the battle uh, with temptation uh, relatively easy to win. And you're left feeling, but I'm not like that. I, I will never be like that. And rather than being encouraged, you're discouraged. And perhaps older biographies in particular tended in that direction. Perhaps idealizing the person that they were writing about. Perhaps there was a feeling that we don't want to write about their faults. Somehow that maybe reflects on their God. And so there was a tendency, and sometimes still is, to airbrush out the struggles and the the weaknesses. But then the end result is that it can leave the reader, can leave us perhaps feeling overwhelmed by our own failures. We're not like that. But then you turn to the Bible and how different it is. Because there you have a faithful record of the lives of God's people. The good and the bad faithfully recorded the falls and the defeats set out for us as honestly as their triumphs and their successes. The fact is that in the end when we read about God's people in Scripture, we have people that we can identify with. Not those that we feel we will never be able uh, to reach that pitch. Uh, And James here in the portion we're going to look at today uh, uses one of the great Old Testament figures to instruct us with regard to prayer. So now we want to turn to verses near the end of James. We're not quite there yet. James 5 and we're looking at 16 to 18 lessons in prayer part two. As we look uh, at these uh, verses, first of all, we note mutual ministry, mutual ministry. Uh, James has already dealt with the ministry of the elders, those set aside to position of leadership and oversight in the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, Now he goes on uh, in these verses to apply uh, what he has to say about prayer uh, to the life of God's people in general, uh, not just to leadership, but to all believers. Therefore, he says in verse 16, confess your sins to one. Therefore, it means in the light of the things I have been saying so far, things about prayer, about sin, and so on. Here are instructions for all of God's people not just for those in leadership. Confess your sins to each other, he says, recognizing that sin does damage uh, fellowship in the church of Jesus Christ. And, of course, in the light of what he's just been saying uh, about sickness, we can't rule out, uh, in every case, uh, a connection between sin uh, and sickness But as we said last time, uh, we're not to engage in some obsessive uh, searching of our lives. If we're sick, uh, to find some sin that must explain it. Uh, That wouldn't be biblical, that would be unwise. But it's something that needs to be taken into consideration. Is the Lord teaching something in a time of sickness? Confession of sin, of course, first of all, must be made to God, We've been singing about that in the Psalms, and Psalm 51 is a great psalm of confession. Uh, and many of the Psalms uh, include confession of sin. Uh, and after all, our sin is primarily against God. Psalm 51 uh, and verse 4 reminds us of that fact, against you, you only have I sinned. Now, of course, uh, often we have sinned against others. But it's the Lord primarily against whom we sin. It's God's law uh, that we break. And therefore, it's to the Lord that we must turn, first of all, uh, in confessing our sins, because he is the one who is able to forgive and to deal with them. Uh, And we have wonderful encouragement to do that in many places in the Bible. First John 1 and verse 9, having uh, reminded all Christians, if we say we've no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. Then John goes on uh, to say, verse 9 of First John 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there we are reminded there is always the means of dealing with our sins in the Lord. He is the only one who can remove our guilt. He is the only one who can cleanse us. Uh, But if our uh, repentance uh, is real, if uh, we are seeking God's forgiveness, also we need to bear in mind any against whom we have sinned offended by uh, our sinfulness, our words, our actions. And Jesus deals with that, uh, for example, in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount. There in verses 23 and 24 of Matthew 5, uh, Jesus tells his disciples that before worship, before sacrificing, using the Old Testament language, of course, if you remember, he says, that your brother has something against you, then he says you're to go and be reconciled to your brother and then offer the sacrifice, engage in worship. We have to face our responsibilities uh, to deal with offenses we've caused. Maybe the careless word, the word in anger, whatever it may be otherwise our confession to the Lord may be an empty thing. We need to understand what James is telling us and what he isn't telling us. Uh, There are some Christian circles uh, where uh, there would be a a practice of of believers in general confessing sin in a group setting, Uh, often with people who haven't been involved in that sinful action, who have maybe known nothing about it, and yet Perhaps as Christians telling others about our, our sins and our faults and our failings uh, to people that have no involvement in it. And that's not what uh, James is exhorting us to do here. Uh, he's not telling us we should confess our sins to any and every Christian and tell them uh, all of what is in our hearts in terms of our sins and our shortcomings. He's certainly not, of course, telling us to confess to a priest, to receive some sort of absolution. But our confession of sin is to be as public as the sin is, and no more than that. There sometimes is unwise confession of sin, maybe by those in leadership, to those who have no knowledge of the sin and no involvement in it. And That, in fact, can be damaging rather than helpful. We deal with the sin in the circle that is involved in the sin. And we're to deal with those against whom we have sinned and to seek their forgiveness. That's the kind of confession that James is describing here. And, of course, then it's to be met with a forgiving spirit. Colossians 3.13 Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Of course that too is a challenge that needs grace. It needs grace to confess and it needs grace to forgive. And there are those, you may have heard them say sometimes, well I'll forgive but I'll not forget. But of course when that's said, it puts a question mark over the forgive. And there are those Uh, that will say, well, they may say they're sorry, but I'll never forgive them. And sadly, you hear Christians sometimes saying that and having that spirit. If the Lord forgave us in that way, where would we be? If the Lord forgave in a way that keeps the sins hanging over us, where would we be? It needs grace to confess, it needs grace to forgive. It's not something the world can do. It's not something we see in the world around us, people behaving in that way. Then when the barriers are removed, pray for each other. That should characterize Christian fellowship, praying for each other. And that's what we should be doing for congregation for the wider church for other Christians we know that we pray for one another and that mutual ministry in prayer that is vital for the health of the church of Jesus Christ remember one man on an occasion professing Christian the subject of praying for others came up and the need for him to pray and His comment was, well, sure, we We pay you to pray for us. Took me back a bit, I must say. How sad if that ever is the attitude in our minds. We have the professionals to pray for us. We don't need to do it. We need to be praying for one another. It means, of course, getting to know what the needs are. What the situations are. God... In his mercy, no doubt, answers and blesses vague prayers. Bless so-and-so if we don't maybe know really the needs. But how much better it is if we know the needs in the situation. That's why we circulate prayer information. As we get prayer letters, it's so that you can pray intelligently and specifically for the Lord's people. But of course, the first circle is in the life of the congregation. We're to be praying for one another, not just the elders praying. That, of course, is a duty of our office and the responsibility that we have, but it's for all of us that we're praying for one another, not in a restricted circle, but for all of God's people. Do you notice the result that James mentioned here? So that you may be healed, That's quite striking. I was harking back of course to what he said about the elders praying for someone who's sick and if there are obstacles to blessing sin that has not been confessed if it is dealt with then there may even be physical healing. I think James has taken that into account. Certainly healed spiritually no doubt. About that, obstacles to blessing are removed, and in the fellowship of God's people, a healthy praying for one another, a healthy concern for one another, and that is vital mutual ministry. You don't need three years at a theological college to be able to pray for each other. It's for all of God's people. What a ministry we can have! And there are those, I'm sure, when we stand before the Lord at the last day, uh, there will be some who will be rewarded richly. Who maybe had poor health, limited opportunities, but who gave themselves to pray for other Christians. And they'll probably be way ahead when the blessings are handed out of preachers and people who were busy and running here, there, and everywhere with a big Bible under their arm. And there'll be those who prayed faithfully who will be rewarded. Let's seek to be among them in that mutual ministry. James then goes on to write in the second place about vital principles, vital Principles relating particularly to prayer. He goes on at the end of verse 16 to encourage us. Sometimes, of course, even preachers fall into simply making Christians feel guilty for not praying more. Have you ever had a diet of teaching like that? Have you prayed enough? How long did you pray this morning before you came out? Do you pray as much as you should? And of course the answer is, always is. No, I haven't prayed as much as I should or could. But driving people with a sense of guilt actually often achieves very little. And what James here does is encourage us positively. The end of verse 16, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. There's encouragement for the Christian. Here, are several principles, and just in those few words that we can all take to heart uh, the word that James chooses for prayer there there are several words for prayer you don 't obviously pick that up in a translation, but the word he uses here uh, is a word that ha- suggests a degree of earnestness that 's why, in the authorized version. Uh, It's translated the fervent prayer. uh, And that catches it. There's a degree of earnestness, uh, of fervency in praying. Prayer is a serious business. You know that when you try to give yourself to prayer, it's hard work. It's probably the area where, as Christians, we're weakest. And we shouldn't approach it casually. We're coming into the presence of our God and Father. Think of that, always think of that when you're praying. And so you come with reverence. You should come also with anticipation, shouldn't you? With eagerness. Knowing that God is more ready to answer your prayers than you even are to make them. <clears throat> Hebrews eleven six He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. If you seek him earnestly in prayer, he will hear, he will answer. And of course, we should be moved by the needs of fellow believers. Think of it in the context here. Uh, the, the outworking of John fifteen twelve: Love each other as I have loved you. And one of the ways we love fellow believers is praying earnestly for them. Listen to Paul writing in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? A very powerful pastoral outlook of Paul. Maybe sometimes if Christians were honest, their version would be who is weak and I'm glad I'm strong. Who is led into sin? But I'm not because I'm a good Christian. Paul's outlook is so different. Members of the body of Christ. We can't cut ourselves off from others. We can't live as spiritual hermits who don't take any interest or concern for our fellow believers. And isn't this so different from the attitude of the world around us? This is one of the ways in which Christians should be seen to be different, and we will be seen to be different more and more. That our values, our attitudes to others are not the attitudes of the world. When one sins, we don't respond with gloating or with self-righteousness. You can see plenty of that in the world. Somebody falls. What's the reaction of others Well, it is perhaps to gloat over their failures or to feel how much better I am than they are. The Christian rather should be responding with prayer, with concern. It's not just ministers here to have pastoral hearts. All of God's people are to have pastoral hearts. Earnest prayer. Do you notice then James says of a righteous man, a righteous person. Not saying that only the prayers of sinless people will be heard, because in that case none of our prayers would be heard. Not sinless perfection, but reminding us we're to be as we pray, those who are pursuing holiness, who long to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And you understand that sin that we haven't confessed is an obstacle to prayer. Psalm sixty-six, eighteen. if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And so confession's all the more necessary to open the way for our prayers and our intercessions. But doesn't James encourage us tremendously here that if we are coming to God in the right spirit in the right way, depending on Christ for our own forgiveness, The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective, the NIV puts it. Literally, it is powerful in its working. And that should encourage us. The power of prayer. Not power that our prayers have because we are such good people. Not power that our prayers have because we are so earnest in our praying. But power that our prayers have because our God is great. Because the God we are addressing is mighty and loves to answer the prayers of his people. That is why such prayer is powerful in its working. It's because God is powerful. Let's never think that our righteousness earns answers. That we deserve God to answer prayer. But God loves his people. God loves to hear the prayers of his children. And God loves to answer them powerfully. Those are vital principles for us to keep in mind. That prayer requires our best efforts. It's earnest prayer and it requires that we be right with god that we are righteous in christ and such prayers are powerful they are effective because god is powerful god loves to answer our prayers who who stirred the prayers in our hearts in the first place it's the lord our prayers are powerful because he has written them into his plans It's not that our praying is trying to persuade God to change his mind. Do you ever find yourself praying that sort of prayer and feeling, if I pray hard enough, maybe God will change his mind? That's not the kind of prayer James is talking about. Our prayers are written into the plans and purposes of God. Whether his answer is yes or no, or maybe wait. But he will answer. And he delights to answer. And his answers often will be powerful and surprising. There's plenty of encouragement for us in what James has to say. Vital principles. And then finally, prevailing prayer. Now we come to the biblical example that we mentioned at the beginning. You may have thought we're never going to get to the biblical example, but we've reached it, Elijah. Elijah, who was highly regarded among the Jews, greatly used by God, you remember, in times of great spiritual declension in Israel. We think of Elijah as a powerful figure, Given the the camel's hair garment and the fearless Elijah confronting an evil king, and all of that is thoroughly biblical. But that isn't all, of course, that we are told about Elijah in the Scriptures. James describes him very significantly as a man just like us, and we shouldn't forget that a man just like us, a man who had his times of failure when he ran in fear from Jezebel, a man who had his times when he was downcast. Remember him in the the wilderness? In the sense, I'm the only one left. Nobody else is being faithful. And Elijah had his down times and his times of failure, a man just like us the same nature as we have, the same basic spiritual experiences, times of hardship, times of discouragement. It's good to stop and remember that the things we have in common with Elijah are far greater than the differences. Now, we're not called to stand before rulers and confront them, much less to run in front of a king's chariot which is just as well for some of us. But the similarities are greater than the differences. A man just like us. That's what James emphasizes. And so we can identify with Elijah. He's a man who knew knew the Lord, a man who showed great courage, serving the Lord faithfully. But a man who also knew times of depression, of despair, times of failure. Read about it in First Kings 19. And doesn't that encourage us? Here's Elijah, not a man whose level we will never reach, and so we despair and give up. But a man who, by God's grace, was able to do the work God gave him. By the same grace of God, we can do the work God gives us. God hasn't changed. And in particular, of course, it's prayer that James has in view. Elijah prayed earnestly. He prayed. James tells us that it wouldn't rain. Now, it's interesting, actually, you read through 1 Kings. There's no reference to Elijah praying that it wouldn't rain. But clearly, the Lord has revealed to James that that was the case. Elijah, no doubt, was praying on the basis of what God had said he would do. That's how we should pray, of course. Pray according to God's promises. Elijah did that. And it didn't rain, we were told, for three and a half years. He's simply doing what God had told him to do. And then he prayed, and the rain did come. And listen to the description. 1 Kings Uh, 18 he bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees why did he do that it's odd Uh, and some of us are never going to be able to do that again but why did he do it it wasn't to attract attention that people say oh look at Elijah look at him bent down like that amazing he must really be praying It's simply a mark of his earnestness in his prayer. Earnest that God would answer. And the result, of course, was fruitfulness. The heavens gave rain. The earth produced its crops. The time of judgment passed and the time of blessing came. And Elijah's prayers were part of God's plan. We may not be praying for the rain to be withheld in the nation or the rain to come in the nation. There are times when prayer for rain has been appropriate. But Elijah is an example of earnestly praying and taking God at his word and praying on the basis of God's word and God's promises and giving ourselves to prayer. Elijah was a man like us. After that great event up on Mount Carmel, the praying for the rain, it was after that that he panicked and ended up in the wilderness. He's a man like us. And that's encouraging. This is not some level of spiritual life you and I could never reach. What Elijah was that's good was by God's grace. What you and I are that's good is by God's grace. And by that grace, we're to be praying people. Praying like Elijah. An example to us to pray earnestly. And God will answer in his way, in his time, and he'll have the glory. That's the kind of example we need. You, know, you read stories sometimes of, uh, of the great figures of the past, and the Puritans, for example, and the hours and the hours they spent in prayer. The, the account of one whose name escapes me, who, who, who to keep himself awake for hours of prayer put his feet in cold water. I think, Should I be doing that? I certainly haven't, I can tell you that. But the point is not trying to imitate some of these Uh, more extreme practices. The point is to pray earnestly with the strength God gives us and the time God gives us and to pray earnestly for blessing on his people, on his church and yes, on the wider world. There are many examples in the Bible of praying people and Elijah is one of them. May God enable us to be Elijah's in our praying, earnest, taking God at his word and praying his promises and seeing God's answers and giving him the glory.